Hello and welcome to the European VC, your podcast for insights into European VC. Broadcasting from Denmark, I'm Andreas, and as always, I'm joined by David, who is tuning in from Portugal. Before kicking the mic to David for an introduction of our guests, I'll kindly remind you all that you can always suggest topics or guests for future episodes through LinkedIn or at our website at theeuropeanvc.com. We really value your feedback and suggestions, so please don't hold back. Also, to all of you who might be about to raise an international round, do feel free to reach out for an introduction to relevant VCs. We're happy to help wherever we can. Now, David, take it away. Thanks, Andreas. Well, for this episode, we're going to change things up a bit. Today, we're listening to the first in a two-part episode with William McKillen, co-founding partner of Frontline Ventures. Prior to starting Frontline, William was a founding employee at Andra, an award-winning startup investment boutique that went from a four-person team to 70-plus employees across London, New York, and Paris in just 18 months. William has so much to say, and you know we're all ears when he speaks. We hope you love this episode as much as we have done making it and encourage you all to connect with William to hear more about his thinking. In the first part of the series, we'll be discussing Frontline's investment thesis and deep dive on how they help their companies expand to the U.S. and from the U.S. to Europe. In the second part, which will be aired in a fortnight, we'll focus on VC firm building and specifically on how William has built a truly global fund with only 15% of the deal flow coming from their home market. Please stay tuned. William, hello and welcome to the EUVC. How are you? Very good. Thanks for having me, guys. And great to be chatting again. Awesome. William, we always kick it off on the personal side. And I see no better way of getting to understand your personality than to ask you about your annual challenges. I know you've got like a set of rules for this and that you've done quite cool things, in my opinion. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, I, mean, I think there's, there's definitely lots of VCs who do these kind of big triathlons and, and these big kind of ultra marathon things. And for me, I'm probably not naturally that person. You know, I, somebody who doesn't enjoy gyms, I, I would say I actively would avoid gyms if I could. Um, and so for me, being healthy and staying fit is still really important. And I tried to kind of come up with ideas on how I could motivate myself to go for a run in cold, wet, sometimes snowy winters or, you know, do any exercise, you know, when I didn't like going to gyms. And I just came up with this idea uh, with a friend probably about six, six years ago. Uh, we were having beers and he was like, why don't you set yourself a challenge? Because he knows I'm a very competitive person. And he's like, if you set yourself a challenge, you know, you'll be competitive to actually go and accomplish this. And I like that idea. And then while we were having those multiple beers, by the end of it, we kind of set each other like a number of like things that we wanted to be in this challenge. And so, you know, the first rule was that it has to be something I can do with other people because I'm also a big extrovert and I, I love spending time with other people. And so I thought, well, why don't each of these challenges I do, I do with friends. And it's not always the same friends, but it has to be something I can do with people. So for example, I'm not going to do a big long swim because that's not a very social thing. I'm not going to be able to talk to people about that uh, during that. Next rule is that I have to come up with the idea myself. So I can't just sign up to a pre-made triathlon. I turn up, there's, you know, flags and people working there to tell you where to go and stuff like that. It has to be something like an idea I come up with entirely myself. And the rationale for that is that I like planning things. And when I plan something, I get mentally more committed to having to do it. And, uh, and then the third part, which is kind of a random one, but I just decided I would set this as a goal, is it has to be from like point A to point B. And that sounds strange, but maybe I'll give you a few examples of some of the things. So like, you know, we did uh, the first one, which my friend and I came up with the, the over pints of Guinness that night was 
was we ran from Bilbao to Santander along the Camino, which was stunning. So that's about 150 kilometers in a little over two days. Uh, another one we did was I cycled from Paris to London in two days. I also did a big, long cycle across Ireland to friends. And then um, maybe two years ago, we did the, the five peaks where we tried to climb the tallest mountain in England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and Southern Ireland. Uh, or who did I skip out there? Uh, I think I got all five there. And you had to do it in 48 hours. And the, you know, the biggest challenge, that was more like the logistics of getting between mountains tend to be in rurally difficult places to get to. And so getting from one tall mountain to another tall mountain to another tall mountain was the more complicated part. So there was as much challenge in the logistics. But the key thing is that I tell lots of people about what is my next upcoming challenge so that they hold me to it. And I was actually really disappointed. Last year, I couldn't do my challenge. I was going to kayak from England to France, but you have to apply for like permits with the Coast Guards and stuff like that. And I was given two windows or a week each and both times the weather just wasn't good. So I did all this kayak training um, and never actually got to go into the English Channel. Like not, I didn't even touch the water of the English Channel. So, so but anyway, I'm excited about the ones coming up. COVID has definitely, the lockdowns have paused the challenges a little bit, but I've got one in case anyone who's listening happens to be from the Faroe Islands. I would love for you to reach out to me because I'm trying to do a really cool challenge in the Faroe Islands. And I've reached out to three travel companies there and no one's coming back to me. And I hope the travel companies are okay with COVID and all that uh, lockdowns, but no one's coming back to me. And I've got this really cool idea for a challenge there. So anyway, I'll stop uh, pitching the, the <laughs> Faroe Islands. Um, William, very cool. And I always say, you know, it, it's so interesting to see that most of the people we interview have this competitive nature and that it comes out even on their personal hobbies and stuff they like to do. And uh, I'll repeat the reach out. If everyone's yeah. listening from Faroe yeah. Islands, I hope uh, you can help uh, William out with planning his next, his next challenge, annual challenge. Very, very cool. And you've even spoken about something that I, I wanted to touch as well, which is the fact that you share this with everyone, all of your acquaintances, and that kind of also creates this accountability. And this, in my opinion, kind of touches on something we've spoken about in the past, which is you raised a really interesting point about the importance of VCs keeping their egos in check. And you shared an example of one of your school friends working as an undertaker as kind of a contrasting example. Can you elaborate a bit on that and expand on how you try to keep yourself humble and grounded? Yeah, I think just for, for anyone listening who's not a VC, you know, when I first became a VC, you know, I hadn't been in, before, before we started Frontline, I hadn't been a VC before. I'd been on the entrepreneur side. And literally almost kind of as soon as Frontline was announced that we had a fund, almost overnight, suddenly I started getting more people who wanted to meet with me, more people who wanted to spend time with me. I started getting invited to conferences. I started getting invited to speak at conferences, getting invited to speak at podcasts. Thank you, guys. And, <laughs> um, and you know, it's very easy to believe that the reason why everyone wants to spend time with you or listen to you or talk to you is because you're great, you know, and because you're so smart and you're so witty and you're so charming. But the thing you just have to constantly keep in check is that the reality is that, you know, I have an enormous privileged position to be able to invest potentially millions into companies and millions of millions is, you know, for 99.99999% of the world, millions is a life changing amount of money if you want to build your company, you know, especially at the start. And so I think I have to make sure that that's always come check. And the example we, we spoke about was in venture capital, I'm incredibly privileged as well, because every single day people come in and they're trying to get me excited. Their goal is that they're passionate about what they're doing and they need to try and get me as passionate so that I will hopefully invest in that company. And that means that at the end of every day, I'm constantly, everyone who I meet is trying to lift me up, trying to get me excited. And again, that's, you know, an amazing ego boosting and, and 
you know, self-actualizing thing, you know, and I, I gave you the comparison that one of my good school friends, you know, he runs an undertakers and, you know, on his day, you know, he constantly is meeting people who are often at their lowest points or at their side, going through some of the deepest sadness they're going through because they've lost someone who they love so dearly. And it's his job and his family's job to like lift those people up and make sure that they have a day that they feel properly respects and remembers that person. And, you know, I'm sure for him, that is emotionally exhausting at times because, you know, the opposite to me, he has to lift people up every single day. And for me, I'm so lucky and privileged to be in a job where the people around me are lifting me up every single day. And, you know, I think that I'm very lucky that my partner, she is an entrepreneur. My, both my parents run small businesses and they very much keep me in check that, you know, it is extremely hard to run businesses and not to take that for granted when working with all the entrepreneurs that I work with. And say, I, uh, I can't believe two more contrasting industries than uh, running an undertakers and running a VC firm. So yeah, that is definitely a different world from ours. William, I'd love to uh, to get back to what you said about you uh, going from being an entrepreneur to having raised Frontline, the first fund. Because of course, to everyone's understanding, you are the founding partner together with... Uh, Will and Shane. Yeah, that makes it, of course, super interesting to really dive into the investment thesis of your fund. And I understand that you have two funds. You've got the Frontline Seed Fund, which is an early stage fund helping European founders expand into the US. And then, then you've got Frontline X, which kind of does the opposite, but at the later stage, it brings uh, U.S. companies into Europe. Yeah. It's very clear from your website that in your communication towards entrepreneurs, this is a very, very big and strong value prop for you. And that's basically why founders pick you, I guess, at least to a large degree. Would you care to take us through that, through your thinking around that positioning? Because it's quite a bit more uh, tangible than most VC value props you hear out there. Yeah, I think that, you know, from the very start of when we founded Frontline, the way we think about venture capital is it's a product, right? We're developing a product offering and our customers are entrepreneurs. And, you know, we're trying to figure out effectively what are the services or what are the things that they need the most help with and then that's not, and are we able to deliver that to them? Because, you know, they're our customers. They need to, we need them to be choosing us. If we want to get into the best companies, we want to be working with and supporting the best and most ambitious entrepreneurs. We need them to choose us over other venture capital funds. And so we constantly are thinking about what are the biggest challenges they have? What are the things that we can do that add enough value so that they will choose us over a, another fund? And, you know, the, the venture capital market is a very competitive space for the top companies. And so in our case, you know, one of the key things that we started when we started the fund was, we felt that a lot of the venture capital funds in Europe, most of them really were not thinking globally enough and ambitiously enough. And so we wanted to kind of really set a bar saying, look, the reason why is that a lot of European entrepreneurs struggle to expand into the US. It's an enormous market. It's a very competitive market. Um, and so we, we wanted to make sure that our portfolio had a really great path and ability for the seed stage to be able to expand into the US. Because realistically, you know, I mean, the average customer sizes are bigger. The average lead times are shorter. Corporates are more likely to work with earlier stage companies and take risks. They're, you know, much more risk averse corporates in Europe. And so for us, that was key when we were developing the strategy of Seed Fund 1. We wanted to make sure that we were effectively the gateway. We could reduce that friction to expand into the US. One of the things we started to do as we built all these relationships with the US funds and in the US, we realized that actually, even though there were these incredibly evolved and very big VCs in the US, an area they really weren't helping top US companies with was how to expand into Europe. And when we kind of crunched into the data, you know, realistically, uh, roughly up to 35% of the revenue for BDB companies when they IPO is coming from Europe. And that's an enormous portion of revenue. And if you're thinking about Europe too late, that means that you're just not going to be in a great position to IPO if you're one of these top, top performing US tech companies. Um, and so we were just amazed that a lot of these huge name VCs were just not putting it on a 
prior list, didn't have anyone on the team with a skill set. And so that's why recently we launched that specific separate strategy, which we call Frontline X. Um, and that uh, is specifically helping, as you rightly pointed out, growth stage, top tier US companies expand into Europe. And you know, we think anybody, no matter where you're starting a company, if you want to build you know, a globally transformational business, you, know, you need to be thinking internationally from day one. And so that's just, I think, whatever we continue to do as Frontline, you know, international will always be a core part of it because we know that the most ambitious entrepreneurs are thinking internationally from day one and we can help them accelerate that. Yeah, of course, that makes perfect sense. In that relation, William, you've, of course, uh, on your website published a, uh, a very insightful report called The Global Ambition, How B2B Companies Win and Lose in Europe. In it, you deal with the uh, five most important questions to consider and answer before going into Europe. It would, of course, be interesting to to dive into that report here and would be very easy for you since you've uh, written the report. So we'll go the opposite way also because most of our listeners are, of course, in Europe and most VC funds in Europe work the other way, trying to get European companies into the US. I'm very interested to hear what would you say would be the opposite recommendations for European companies going into the US and what do you do in your daily operations? Yeah, so uh, for, for all the listeners who may not have read the report, please do go read it. It's, it's on our website. The five questions that Andreas was referring to when you know US companies are expanding to Europe are why should you expand? When should you expand? Where to expand to? How to sort out the product market fit? And then how to hire? Those are the five questions that we kind of drove the report around. And you know, to thank you for the challenge of doing it the other way. I will tell you that I'm partially cheating because we actually republished a 90-page guide on how to expand from Europe to the US about three, three and a half years ago. So I might be even yeah. more of an expert <laughs> on, on that. But so so for any of the, the European-based companies who are looking to expand into the US, highly recommend reading that guide. You'll also find it in the report section of our website. And it effectively, just to go, yeah, I'll, I'll, but it's not laid out in the same way. So to set myself out in a challenge, I'll answer the five questions in reverse. So the first is you know, why you should expand into the US. I touched on this a little bit in the last question. You know, If you're a B2B company, the US is a larger market for B2B software than Europe. So straight away, you should be expanding your market all the time if you're a globally ambitious founder. Secondly, US companies are far less risk averse than European companies. So they are much more likely to want to work with an up and coming company rather than a big, large, you know, SAP Salesforce incumbent. And so, you know, you are more likely to get someone to convert into your customer. Lead times are shorter, average contract sizes are higher. And so like, you know, why wouldn't you expand into the US? And we really try and encourage our companies to do that as soon as they can. You know, when to expand, that's a really big question. And that can depend on the type of company you are whether you're a large enterprise company, whether you're targeting, you know, small SMEs, you know, that can be something that could be at different times. What we find is that for most of the large enterprise companies, it tends to be after in between series A and series B is the right time. They tend to have the resources, the team and the time to do that. For companies targeting SMEs, we say, you know, you should be starting right away because you can actually target a lot of those SMEs without even having people on the ground. And so we tend to see that more happening right after the C round. That's kind of when to expand and then kind of where to expand. We always say to focus on two things, where are your customers, where are your potential hires? So look at the team that you need to build, look at the customers you're trying to target. And oftentimes, almost always those two things will be in the same place. And that might be if you if you're targeting, you know, financial firms, that should absolutely be New York. If you're targeting, you know, tech companies as your customers, that should probably be South San Francisco, you know. So those are gonna be two stereotyped answers, but you know, it can get more nuanced depending on who you're targeting and how. Um, how to adopt your product and your go-to-market strategy. I would say that the key thing just to take into account is to think about your product and whether that's suited to America. I mean, there are obviously small kind of English-based changes to make, but 
In reality, uh, what we find is most of our companies don't need to change their products too much when expanding into the US. There might be some sort of content-based changes. One of our companies, you know, a company called Signal AI, they scan all the world's news every single second in every single, you know, hundred and something languages. You know, for them, when they expanded into the US, certain publications, certain newspapers were more important to those corporates. And so they needed to make sure that they had those signed up or they were scanning those. But, you know, things like that are kind of the localization things that you need to think about. But overall, our general experience is particularly for enterprise companies, there isn't a huge amount of changes that need to be done. It's, it's actually much more complicated to expand into Europe, which has multiple differing cultures and languages and, and uh, legal structures. And then the last one on hiring, you know, again, this really, uh, I, I would maybe err this one to people to go and look at the guide just because I think we have like maybe 10 pages of the guide just on this one. And I, I probably am not going to give it justice uh, in answering it here, but, uh, but there are multiple different ways depending on the type of company and the way you want to build your team out there. Well, I'd just like to follow up with the question that uh, since our listeners here are VCs, what would you say that should be the main role of the VC in this path? I think in the front line, the way we look at the main role of the VC is, is that we should be constantly reducing friction for what's the right strategy for the company. So frontline tends not to try and dominate or lead the strategy in, in what we're doing. We expect our founders, we, we invest in people who we think are capable of building huge companies. And so we expect them to be generating the core strategy of their company. We will give them advice and support on that strategy. And, and our key focus is to reduce friction. So in the example that we just talked about expanding into the US, you know, that can be, first of all, helping them figure out from experience, what are the right places they should move, you know, introducing them to some early customers, introducing them to some potential hires or some of the key recruiters for different regions or different industries. And then, you know, a key and a really important one that our companies value enormously is access to U.S. capital, because although our networks in the U.S. are very good, if we bring in a, a tier one series A or series B investor who's in the U.S., just when the company's looking to expand there, they can open up huge networks for them there as well. And I think that's kind of the way we think about it. But it's really at a macro level, how do we reduce the friction for our companies? Our companies are already these hopefully trains that are moving really fast. And what we don't want is suddenly for them to have a, a ton of stuff in front of them, slowing them down, right? We want them to keep building momentum and building speed. And if we can reduce the friction, that should hopefully uh, allow them to do that better. Yeah, so it's all our listeners will share on the episode notes, um, the link to this report and the guide as well that William just referred, yeah. so you can check it quite Thanks. easily. I'm gonna go off script now, and this might be a very, very silly question. For me, it's quite clear, you know, this value proposition of Europe to US, US, Europe, especially your genesis is European. So that value prop is really strong, I believe. And so my question is really to the point, and this is a bit outdated as a topic, but I'm curious about it, which is Brexit. And to what extent has that impacted your operating model and or your strategy on this side of helping American-based companies coming to Europe and ensuring that you can then, you know, have a European-wide reach rather than just a smaller regional reach? So, uh, we, uh, sorry, not, not to keep advertising these reports, but we actually did another report on... I feel like you're setting me up here for, for just advertising our, the reports that we've done. So thank you. Yeah, our, our growth team specifically did a report analyzing how Brexit has affected US companies or North American companies expanding into Europe. And, and the answer was directly after the vote in the year and a half after it, there was a noticeable slowdown of US companies expanding. But what we've seen is, and, and, and I, I don't know the data around COVID exactly, but what we've seen is actually in the last two years, that started to speed up again back to normal. And so, and you know, the UK is, uh, London is still the number one location for where these US companies move to, Dublin second. And maybe what we would say though is, you know, Berlin, Amsterdam, and Paris are, are very quickly increasing as popular destinations. So I think what Brexit's probably doing is at least at the moment, it hasn't massively changed the movement of US companies to Europe. London is still the number one choice, but 
we are seeing in the companies that we work with, they're questioning it a lot more. Whereas historically, it was just like London seems like the right choice. Whereas now they're spending more time thinking, should we move to Amsterdam? Should we move to Berlin? Should we move to Dublin? Or et cetera, et cetera, wherever that might be. Copenhagen or Lisbon as well, not to leave any, uh, any great cities out. And so I think that's the main effect is that it's, it's making people question it more. And look, when people question things more, they will find other answers, right? And so I think that it is inevitable to affect that. But realistically, the one thing we're seeing is that although there was an initial drop, the demand for US companies expanding into Europe is increasing more than ever. William, I'd, I'd just like to jump back to the uh, original investment thesis question because we ended up talking a lot about the uh, operational value add side towards founders. But would you maybe uh, expand a bit on when this is your core value add? What is then your investment thesis around the companies that you're that you're looking to invest in? Sure. So uh, at, the, at the broader sense, what Frontline Seed Fund, at least, is looking to invest in is we're looking to invest in the most ambitious entrepreneurs who are building B2B companies in Europe. And, and for what I mean by B2B, it's, it's business to business. So, you know, the customer of all of our companies are going to be businesses. That could be a small SME or it could be a very large enterprise, but they're all businesses. And when it comes to how we choose those companies or how we... Um, I, I think the only one thing is, I mean, obviously they have to be incredibly ambitious, but the only thing that really maybe would stop us investing in some companies that others wouldn't, given our thesis around internationalization is there can sometimes be very large businesses that are just in one geography. So you could potentially build a very large insurance tech company just in Germany or just in France, right? Or the UK, you know, we avoid companies like that because, you know, realistically the core, one of our core areas of value, we don't think we'll be able to give as much. And so that, that's probably the only thing that I think steers us a little bit. Otherwise, you know, uh, to kind of put numbers on it, 80% of our companies are pre-product and 50% of our, our companies are pre-revenue. And so, you know, when you're investing in such early stage companies, we really are pretty broad on what areas we invest in. What we're really investing in is people. And that's the vast majority of our decision. Do we think the people we're investing in are good enough for us to invest in? And that doesn't mean that they're like third, fourth time entrepreneurs. You know, some of our top performing entrepreneurs, one is a, was someone who we invested in when he was 23. Another person we invested in when he was 19, you know? And, um, and so I don't think it's just about experience. It's about, again, going back to principles. What are the key uh, traits that we look for? What are the key things we want to see in those entrepreneurs? And that's much, we have much more of a thesis around what we look for in the entrepreneurs than necessarily what is going to be the future technologies in B2B that we should be focusing on. So William, uh, I, I, I have to pursue this one because everyone says uh, uh, it's 80% people, uh, 20% idea, 20% business, whatever. But when you then uh, uh, probe and ask, so what do you look for in people? Uh, then it's uh, it's often the, uh, the same vague answer that you get from everyone. What would you be your reply? Okay. So I feel like the vague answers that everyone else gives is like, I want people who are super ambitious. I want people who can run through walls, et cetera. So uh, maybe there's other vague things you want to add to that. Maybe if I think about things that we specifically look for that I don't hear VCs talking about as much, I would say self-awareness. So you know, self-awareness is basically the understanding of what you are good at and who you are and also what you're not good at. And what we noticed is that you know, at the seed stage, you actually don't need to have good self-awareness to build at the seed stage because realistically, you know, at the seed stage, often the founders are doing everything. So they don't need to realize that they're terrible at other stuff or that they're not hiring well. But people who have poor self-awareness tend to hire poorly. They tend to hire people who are more similar to themselves rather than complementary to themselves. And so suddenly, if you've invested in people who have poor self-awareness, by the time you get to series A, series B, they'll have built a team that just doesn't scale. And often people with poor self-awareness hire yes people around them rather than people who challenge them. And so I think that's something that we actively look for and we uh, won't probably give them all away, but we have a number of different questions and ways that we try and spot that in founders when we're meeting with them. I think this is something that some VCs say, but I, I just I think it's so important is that, you know, I want to see 
the founders caring about what they're building. And what I mean by that is that, you know, somebody who's just started a company for the sake of starting a company is not, although there have been some people who've built big companies doing that, I don't believe that the most companies are built like that because it's just, it's so easy to give up and it's so easy to, and accept an offer for a 50 million exit. Because realistically, if you guys, if both of you guys found a company and you suddenly get offered 50 million, maybe after two rounds or one round of funding, you probably will each walk away with minimum 10, probably like even maybe like close to 20 million each, right? That is a completely life-changing amount of money, not just for you, but for your kids, probably your extended family, and maybe your kids' kids, most likely assuming you don't like blow it all on big yachts, like probably your kids' kids too, right? And so for someone to turn down the 50 million exits, you need them to really care about the mission of what they're trying to build and they need to be passionate about why they're doing it. And so that's something that I really look for is like, what's the motivation behind the people? What, how do they envisage success? Why are they, why are they doing this? And you know, it's amazing how many people come and answer me and say, cause I want to be a billionaire or I want to build a billion dollar business. And once people start talking about money, I immediately know that they're not motivated in the right way for me to invest in. And you might think that's counterintuitive. You need to have people who want to build billion dollar companies who are going to build it. But actually if they start telling me it's about money, then I know that they're going to take that 50 million check. Whereas if they tell me, I want this product to change the lives of a million people, or I want to change the way legal tech is built, right? Um, then straight away, I know that they're passionate about the product and what they're building over necessarily the financial outcome of it. Very cool, William. And to your point, yes, an exit like that would be life-changing to both of us. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> to, 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 all, to almost everybody on the planet. But, uh, exactly. <laughs> but William, uh, just pursuing that a bit, what are your thoughts on, on secondaries then? What do you say to founders when they get the opportunity to get out just to few percent, but then they're settled at least. It's actually something that I once got angry at a VC dinner at. I was at a dinner with five other VCs and they were talking about how they were kind of disgusted at how a number of their founders recently had taken secondary off the table. And I was, uh, you know, I, I, I don't come from a huge amount of money. I don't come from, you know, a multi-millionaire, billionaire founder or anything like that. And so to me, like, I know that it's, it would be really hard not to take that 10, 20 million exit, right? Because it would, it would be transformational. It would, it would take financial security completely off the table for me and my family and friends for the rest of my life. And so, you know, the idea of allowing them to take, you know, a small amount of secondary off the table each round, I highly encourage founders to do because, you know, I want them not to be stressed about money. I want them to be focused on building the company and being excited about the potential of the company. I believe very strongly in that and I highly encourage our founders, if it's possible, they should take a small amount off each round and Frontline is always happy to buy secondary. I know there's some funds for certain reasons are not able to buy secondary, but at least Frontline's perspective, we're always happy to buy a bit secondary into a round. Yeah, so to short answer was I encourage it. Sorry, I'm maybe yeah, mad. I'm super happy to hear it's something. I, it's something I feel strongly yeah, about. Yeah, uh, so do I. Uh, I think it's... Uh makes perfect sense for the VC to be asking uh, uh, the founders not to take secondaries when they know that if things tank, they end up on the street pretty much. It's just not a fair situation. Yeah. Maybe what I would say is in some VC's defense, you know, sometimes we have founders who are looking to sell secondary, but then also asking for us to issue them more shares. And I'm like, well, that's kind of like, you know, you're kind of, you're kind of, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, that's a bit, that's a bit, that's a bit cheeky. You probably can't have both, you know, so th that's maybe one defense I would put in the VC side, but, but overall, no, I, I agree. Secondaries are, I think are a very healthy aspect of building a business nowadays for a lot of the tech companies. Definitely. Now, William, we'd like to finish up the first part of our two part interview with a quick fire round. A uh, quick fire round is basically when we ask you three quick answer questions 
and 30 to 60 second answers. Are you ready for this? Yeah, just, just quickly before we start, one of my team, I told them that I had a quick fire section. There's going to be a quick fire section. And they literally laughed on the call because they're like, you can't do quick answers. Really. <laughs> um, so I'm going to try really hard to make Let's sure it, like <laughs> whatever the questions are, I'm going to be like, pow, pow, pow. So, uh, You're going to prove them wrong, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> so first question, what, what would you personally like to change about VC in Europe? So, okay, quick answers, quick answers. Realistically, we started Frontline in 2012. The VC ecosystem has completely changed for the better. It is now, there's better VCs at every different stage. So, you know, I think it is the best time ever to be an entrepreneur in Europe with regards to getting money from VCs. So uh, realistically, most of what I would have wanted to change when we started Frontline actually already has. So that's amazing for entrepreneurs to know. The one thing I would say is I still don't think there's enough good later stage funds. There are some absolutely some great later stage funds, kind of series B stage onwards. And there are a handful or maximum two handfuls, but compared to the US, most of our companies still need to go internationally to raise a great series B and sometimes even the series A. So I think that's probably the only thing I'd still like to see a bit more of, but otherwise, you know, I think the European ecosystems is really exciting. That, now I'll screw up the uh, quick answer question then, <laughs> because I need, to, I need to then ask, why do you see this lacking? So realistically, there are some great series B, and there are some really great series A investors in Europe, right? But there, I don't think there are enough. And when I notice that uh, the majority of our companies at series B onwards are raising from the US, that tells me that there's a product offering that's not there in Europe. If they have to go to the US to raise these rounds, right? And look, we can introduce them to the investors in the US, right? So, but if you're having to go externally to find the capital, well, that tells me then the capital is not there in Europe or the capital is not willing to take the conviction to invest it in Europe. And again, I want to caveat this. There are some really great Series B investors in Europe, but they're just, I don't think there's enough of them. And so to me, I would say over the next five years, we'll probably see an almost doubling of the Series B or the later stage investors, I would imagine, in Europe. Because there are going to be more than enough great companies being built in Europe right at the moment that will need that capital. So either we're going to have more U.S. funds coming to Europe, which is already happening, or we're going to have more European funds. And it'll probably be a blend of the two. Back to the quick fire round. Second question, <laughs> uh, what would be your number one advice to uh, VCs looking to build a stronger connection to the U.S.? You have to go there. We're like, I know post-COVID world, people are going to be traveling a lot less. But realistically, you know, the way Frontline has built the relationships and the deep relationships that we have, both for our growth fund and our C fund, is because we have spent a lot of time there getting to know people over years. You know, in the same way with building any relationships, you know, I don't know, maybe people will disagree with me, but I have found 2020 as an incredibly difficult year to build new relationships. Skype and, and these different Zooms and all these different things are fine to maintain relationships, but they're not great for building new relationships. And so, you know, Frontline has invested years into building these relationships and, you know, it's consistent. We, we are there, at least one of the partners is there once a quarter, apart from obviously during the lockdown period, but over the last, you know, eight years. And that, that kind of frequency of getting to know us and getting to know our whole team has mattered to a lot of these investors. So for a European VC who's looking to build their brand in the US or, and I'd say the same for China, we're starting to do that there too. You know, you need to be there. You can't just pop in once a year, one of your team to say, hi, you know, you need to be there more often. You need to get to know them. You need to understand who they are and what they are and what they're investing in. And then the final thing I'd say is, also, it's not just a one-way thing. You can't just go there saying, hey, invest in our companies. You need to be sharing great stuff from Europe with them, making sure that they're educated on the ecosystem, making sure that they're kind of getting access to the information. So, it, you know, making sure that you're adding value to them. It's not just a, a constant ask to invest in your portfolio. Third and final question, what can you expect from you, William, and Frontline Ventures in the future? I don't know if I can answer that in a quick fire uh, way. 
hopefully, hopefully what people can expect from me in the future takes longer than 60 seconds to talk about. But uh, maybe from Frontline, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of the, at this interview, you know, the way Frontline started was we look at VC as we're a product offering and our customers are entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are a group of people whose demands and needs are constantly evolving. The needs of entrepreneurs today were not the same of when we started in 2012. So I'd say if you say, what can we expect the future of Frontline? Your Frontline is constantly going to be evolving as to what the different entrepreneur, what the most ambitious entrepreneurs need in Europe. And we're going to constantly try and evolve our firm to, to meet what those needs are and to help them with those needs. Perfect. And William, I really enjoyed this chat. Thank you so much for your time here in the European VC. Thank you guys. And thank you for having me. And apologies for completely failing the quickfire round. I think uh, we I were... Think we were more parties about that. <laughs> Andreas tanked it, not you. <laughs> uh, that was the end of our first segment with William. Today, we've gotten to know William Frontline's investment thesis and how they support founders entering the US. Stay tuned for our next episode where we go deep with William on VC firm building. We'll be discussing everything from fundraising to internationalization of the firm brand. Stay tuned for another great session of the European VC with William. We had a great time talking with William McKillen, founding partner of Frontline Ventures. Find William on LinkedIn if you'd like to see more from him. Thank you for listening to this episode of the European VC, the go-to place for insights into the European VC industry. If you would like to hear more from us, visit theeuropeanvc.com. If you'd like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, please do reach out to us at LinkedIn or whichever medium fits you best. We are always there for you.